The tank itself was unusual in that it was vertical and looked like an old boiler. Inside the tank, the subject wore a heavy glass bubble and you would have thought the whole contraption uncomfortable, to say the least. It was, however, effective. Of the 23 students tested, only two found the experience unpleasant. Some even called it exhilarating. A number of students hallucinated. Dr. Jessup found the encephalographic evidence especially interesting. And one Saturday afternoon in April 1967, he decided to try the experience for himself. Welcome to Psychedelics Worth Watching. That is, welcome to Guest Choice, where we ask a guest to choose a movie for us to watch and we talk about it with them. I'm your host, a man who, after unlocking the secrets of the universe, decided to spend all of my time on my couch playing video games and eating Cheetos. My co-host is Guy, who I understand may sometimes spend his nights as a chimpanzee, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And we have a guest today, Sarah Rose Siskin. Hello, Sarah. Hi there. Hey, Ron. Hey, Guy. Hey. Hi. So, Sarah, what is your elevator pitch about yourself? To oh, God. Tell us everything about yourself in 30 seconds. <laughs> All right. Let's see. I am a comedian, New York City comedy writer. I have a company where we help scientists be less boring, and I do a monthly show about psychedelics called Drug Test. Boom. So that's a lot. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a great elevator pitch. So how do you... Now, my impression is that your company kind of injects some humor into scientific communication. Is that? Uh, we try. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but scientists are not exactly hilarious or super interesting a lot of the time. And a lot mm -hmm. of scientific issues come up in the news. And so we've got to find a way to make science more interesting, whether it's epidemiology or climate science. Everybody could be less boring. <laughs> epidemiology jokes. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. COVID is a real laugh riot these days. So, <laughs> also, Rod, I really like your, you've got a radio voice. Oh, thank you. You're like a DJ. Hello and welcome. It's uh, DJ Rod at the station. <laughs> like, you need like sound effects. <laughs> oh, we got those too. We Do you have a foghorn? Unfortunately, I don't have it set up. So, I asked you to sort of send a list of movies that you might want someone to watch. In particular, went over a list of psychedelic-related movies, since you're what, the queen of psychedelia. Is that yes, the... I was just recently <laughs> coronated, so thank you. <laughs> and I wanted to cover some of the ones that we're not talking about today, just, to, you know, kind of a, a quick overview and why you might think people should watch them. So Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I, t I might have seen, I, I know a lot about it, I know the imagery, et cetera. I can't remember if I actually watched it, but... What's your pitch for that? Well, so I went with a lot of sort of psychedelic nostalgia films. And Fear and Loathing Las Vegas is about Hunter S. Thompson, famous psychedelic journalists who I believe took every drug that has ever existed. <laughs> and it kind of just journals his life. But the perspective of the filmmaking is inside of his brain and through the very unsafe, insecure, manic brain that was Hunter S. Thompson. And I just like, the reason I suggested all these films is because I have a sort of loose catalog in my head of the way filmmakers represent tripping 
on screen because you have mm. a very limited mm. medium. Yeah. You know, you can do sounds and sight. You can't do touch, taste, smell. Yeah. You also have like limited time duration. You can't sort of represent temporal hallucinations or unspoken feelings. You've got to be a little bit more direct. And there's innovations in filmmaking that sometimes get applied specifically to showing how trips work. Then there's trip acting, how people act when they're trying to portray a trip. Mm. And I thought Johnny Depp did a really good job portraying essentially what I would argue is Hunter S. Thompson's nascent mental illness interacting mm. with the ether and the masculine that he was taking in every other drug where it produces a sort of mania. A manic state. And he's a very funny character, too. It's been a while since I saw it, but just the, a lot of personality comes out of him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, partly it's a little bit heroic because I think most of us are way more risk averse than Hunter S. Thompson. And he's the kind of person that, I don't know, does a shit ton of masculine and goes to get some checks cash at the bank. Like he just, <laughs> he lives his life like very proud now. And to some extent, the film is wish fulfillment about what would it be like to just kind of live that life. And another extent, it's sort of like a inadvertent dare program where it's convincing people not to take drugs. <laughs> and scared straight. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so another one you had was The Holy Mountain. Now, this was mm. directed by is Jodorowsky, is how you say it, right? Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky. And I only learned about him a year or two ago. I watched this great documentary. I think it's a little bit hard to find now called Jodorowsky's Dune because he, right after Star Wars, was putting together a Dune movie and it's amazing what he was planning and it never would have worked. But he put together a team of people who went on to do Alien and all these other movies that just like, you know, changed the world of science fiction filmmaking. Oh, yeah. But also they showed stuff like the holy mountain you know clips from it and it just looked batshit crazy <laughs> i didn't know if it's actually watchable and what yes so number one for our listeners who can't see ron is in front of a dune board game that is the <laughs> level of nerdiness we are doing right now so yeah jurowski i i put that on my list so that you would think i'm intellectual <laughs> i have watched a couple of his films and he's fucking insane. Like, this is sort of like Fear and Loathing Las Vegas if Hunter S. Thompson was the director rather than the actor. <laughs> so, yeah, Holy Mountain and, and Jodorowsky, it works really well. I actually went to a party once where the guy hosting had a projector and it was a bunch of psychedelic donors and business people. And the host was like, what should I put on on my projector in the background? And I suggested Holy Mountain because... <laughs> The visual imagery is profound. It's absurd. There's no way that I've found to kind of come up with a specific plot through the film. But in aggregate, it gets it gives you a vibe. And sometimes that mm. that mimics psychedelic journeys where mm. they're random, they're strange. You get a lot of unfamiliar stimuli you're not sure how to make sense of. But on a certain level, it's more about what is the vibe that the experience left you with. Jodorowsky's incredible at that. Just to like compound what you were saying, Ron, about how like he was supposed to direct this thing and it didn't come through because he was a transigent about funding. That is him to a T. So for Holy Mountain, George Harrison was supposed mm. to be the lead, the 
beetle. And so he was going to do insane shit to be this protagonist. So many scenes are naked. So many scenes <laughs> involve violence and castration and sex and like shitting in a bucket, literally. <laughs> However, George Harrison, the Beatle, told Jodorowsky, there's only one problem with this script. I will not get my asshole cleaned in front of a camera. <laughs> and Jodorowsky was like, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> and so some other guy got the job. Wow. Mm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I'm not sure where I'd be on that one. Uh, so lastly, and it was, this was surprising on your list to me. And that was once upon a time in Hollywood. So I love that film, but I don't think of it as a psychedelic film, even though I know there's a part where Brad smokes a cigarette, the what a laced cigarette laced and, then, <laughs> and then kicks it a lot of some hippies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that one was about the cultural, like, the end of the hippies. So, like, when I was first doing my psychedelic education, I had a, a pretty tight syllogism, which was essentially, like, 50s bad, 60s hippies good. It was like they believed in, you know, civil rights. They believed in pacifism, all these things that I liked. They, I kind of liked their look. I liked their vibe. They were, like, young and, like, thin and, like, long hair and just, like, I don't know, their whole thing seemed cool. But then I talked to some old people, <laughs> including my parents, who fucking hate hippies, even if they agree <laughs> ideologically. And I couldn't quite get it. And then I discovered hippies were assholes. And I liked the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it really captured the fucking sinister element of hippies mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. to some extent they deny human nature they prey upon weaknesses they really like disdain people who work <laughs> <laughs> and i'm actually an incredible wimp when it comes to on-screen violence and so i had mm. to watch a lot of like the <laughs> latter portion of this film behind my fingers but what I love about Tarantino, just absolutely love, is even though he's extraordinarily violent, all of his films lately about violence have been meditations on violence. And the hippies discuss why they're committing violence. So for people who haven't seen the film, these are hippies who are devotees of Marilyn Manson. Not Marilyn Manson, Charles Manson. <laughs> Excuse me. Marilyn Manson, different guy. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sorry. I took a lot of psychedelics before this podcast. Oh. <laughs> Just a pregame. Anyway, <laughs> so like they they justify their violence by talking about it's not like the hippies who started the violence. It's the Hollywood producers. They normalize yeah. violence. And what's yeah. great about it is this is this message is in a movie. You know, this <laughs> is Tarantino saying like I'm normalizing violence. You know, like and yeah. so I don't know. There's an interesting rumination there right my personal equivalent was growing up woodstock was 10 20 years earlier and it was mythologized like Wood, yeah. like the best people in the world were at woodstock it was the most incredible yeah. experience and it happened and then i become an adult and i watch some documentaries and i look at it, i'm like oh my god that's the last place on earth i would oh ever god. want to be <laughs> people yeah people totally don't understand or at least like younger people totally don't understand how Woodstock went down. It was a fucking human rights 
travesty. <laughs> like people were not, and it was just a weekend. Somehow within like 72 hours max, there was hunger. There was huge health issues, really bad mud issues, bathroom issues, incredible congestion. And people don't realize that like this wasn't a protest against society because society fucking showed up and supported the hippies that gathered. Like these were underprepared hippies and the U.S. Air Force came over with supplies and the local townspeople, these squares who had never heard of Jimi Hendrix, made sandwiches to support these teenagers. And they did it because these were older people who had children who looked just like these hippies. And Mm. there's a false narrative that you think of like the 1950s button-up, misogynistic, madman type gen silent generation. Is that those guys? I've heard them called the greatest generation. Greatest generation, which yeah, wow, that's quite a quite a claim, guys. <laughs> but anyway, like you think of those jerks like hating the hippies. But in fact, there's a really phenomenal speech from the guy who actually owned the farm that Woodstock took place on. He's a Jewish guy whose name escapes me. It's got a Y in it. Anyway, he gives this speech at the beginning of Woodstock, and he says essentially, you guys look like my kids. I have kids your age, and I really support what you're doing here. And he just, he gave the parental approval so many people in that audience probably needed. And so like Woodstock to me is actually a symbol of how society, and by society, I mean like the the more establishmentarian aspects of society came to support this new element, this new revolutionary element is a really beautiful thing because when else in a textbook do you read about a good time? Every other part of the textbook is like wars and, you know, like (laughs) elections and like horrible shit. And like Woodstock made it into the textbook as just like a really fucking good time. (laughs) Right. And I'll have to say to to complete our crapping on hippies, I think the treatment (laughs) of women was terrible. And it's not something I think we pay enough attention to, maybe. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an interesting point. I mean, Nick Gillespie, my partner, has this pretty interesting take where he says one of the elements that was helpful about sexual liberation is that men, for the first time, had to compete sexually because mm. women could mm. openly have their choice of partners. And so, to some extent, it was beneficial. To another extent, women tend to have preferences that's like less sex, more emotional connection that free love may not have perfectly encompassed. Also, many people could have interpreted that as essentially free reign to bypass people's consent, which is not good. When I hear boomers talk about how they took psychedelics, it appalls me because there's a lot of dosing other people without their consent, which is like so fucked Hmm. so there just wasn't very good protocols like now we have terminology like largely borrowed from the bdsm community about affirmative consent and safe words and stuff i just think like the 60s the hippies just did not have a good sense of consent culture or even like individualism so i i see your point ron about the sexism Okay, so then we get to Altered States, and of your list, I chose Altered States because for me, and I think it's true for Guy too, you can say, that was the movie where I remember it being a big deal when I was a kid. I remember the imagery being everywhere. I, I don't know if I saw it or only saw commercials and the, the trailers and everything, 
but I had a really a strong sense of it. On the other hand, I couldn't remember much about it. <laughs> yeah. And one and so, you know, the whole point of our podcast is is this thing worth watching for a modern audience? And it was sort of perfect, like, oh well, let's revisit this thing from our childhood and see if it's worth watching. Guy, what was your connection? I had known about the movie for years. In fact, I remembered the movie poster. Both there was like the the distorted head on the poster and then there was uh well there were two different movie posters i guess but the one i remembered was when his head gets all swelled up and then the the typeface of the movie title oddly enough even though i probably haven't seen that poster since i was a teenager <laughs> but the movie itself if i ever did see it and i i thought that maybe i had seen it and it didn't mm. click with me but I watched it last night, and I didn't recognize anything in it. So mm. I, I don't know. Okay. Guy kind of sounds like a guy who didn't do the homework, but like it's looking at the cover of the book and it's like <laughs> making, <laughs> making judgments. Like I love the font. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I really, I really did watch the movie. I, and I, I liked it in Tibet. <laughs> Good. So, I bet. Since you're uh, younger, at least compared to us, Sarah, so what's your relationship to Aldred States? Like, it was just always there, right? Or what? Well, I kind of, I mean, I kind of watched a little bit like homework, to be honest, like the first time I watched it, because I just got really passionate about psychedelics several years ago. And I've been kind of doing this self-directed autodidactic course, because one of the great things about psychedelics is it's a perfectly interdisciplinary study between chemistry, neuroscience, history, psychology. There's just so many beautiful branches colliding in this one subject. Philosophy, obviously, too. So I, I got the recommendation for Altered States from Nicola Espy, and it felt totally up my alley. As I started watching it, I was very skeptical because mm. it's written sort of like a freshman in college who just started taking psychedelics, the way they talk. <laughs> it's just so like... Oh, my God. Like, they, they use so many $20 SAT words <laughs> just to show how, like, smart they are. But I loved it for a couple of reasons. Like, the one of the biggest reasons is it's actually, if you kind of have an understanding of psychedelic history, a really beautiful thought experiment or alternative history. Because, number one, funding for all psychedelics dried up pretty much immediately in the mid-70s. After the mm -hmm. war on drugs started in 1973, there was like a ban on federal funding for psychedelics. And so there was about a 40-year gap where like nobody was allowed to do real academic studies because most grants are like public. And so there was just nothing. And there had been a fuck ton of studies from like the 40s, 50s, 60s, or just 50s, 60s. And so there's a huge gap. And so this is like a really wonderful imagining of like, what if you still had funding? Mm -hmm. And it's especially true at Harvard, which had an incredible contribution to the field of psychedelic studies with the psilocybin project and Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Richard Alpert, and then completely right. burned its past. Mm -hmm. There's like absolutely no trace these days about its incredible contributions to the study of psychedelics. Now that's a little bit starting to change but not at all when I was there. And what's great about this is it takes place at Harvard. It's a, an imagining. It's loosely based on a guy named John C. Lilly, who studied LSD and 
his case is really interesting. He was funded federally, I believe, by the CIA to fucking talk with dolphins. Like, there's no other way to, <laughs> to get to that insane conclusion. But he was, like, trying to use LSD to fucking commune with dolphins. It was a federally funded study because the CIA funds a lot of speculative research. He got really into sensory deprivation tanks. He did do some really interesting stuff. You'll never believe it, but he wasn't super mentally well. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably just wanted to fuck dolphins. And so the study. <laughs> well, wait, is that bad? <laughs> I mean, that, I get it. Listen, I get it. <laughs> but like, so the study didn't go anywhere, but his writings are famous because he is one of those. He continued in a tradition that also no longer exists, which is scientist participation, where now scientists don't do this. But they used to dose themselves with mm. the drug for liability reasons, for expiration reasons. And that doesn't really exist anymore. So for me, this whole movie is nostalgic and wish fulfillment and experimental and counterfactual. Mm. <laughs> so a movie I'll, I will point you to, maybe I'll put it on our list somewhere, is uh, Day of the Dolphins. There was this whole dolphin thing going on in the 70s. If you never saw that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. That's all really interesting. It's also interesting for us. Patty Chayesky wrote it, although he put a pseudonym on the movie. Now, we have coming up in our podcast, Ice Station Zebra, which he originally wrote, and then his script got thrown out because it was too critical of the military and they needed the yeah. military's participation in the movie. And one of the things we're going to have coming up is Network, which, of course, he's probably yeah. most famous for mm -hmm. writing. So so we seem to have a lot of Patty Chayefsky going on here. When you mentioned the $10 words that keep coming up in the script, the first time I really seized on that i think it's in one of the early scenes where the female lead she's talking about getting harpooned by a mad priest or something like that and that that line just the way it was phrased i was like oh yeah that's uh that's could have come right out of network oh yeah <laughs> it's like one of my favorite parts is like i don't want to give this i don't think is a huge spoiler but at some point in the film, the protagonist, William Hurt, is saying it's like I experienced some sort of a, a genetic regression. And like every other scientist like looks at his x-rays and they're like, ah, yes, that's a genetic regression. As if that's a thing. <laughs> like, that's not a thing. But they validate it so well. I mean, the acting is pretty good yeah, for the script yeah. because they make. And what I actually that's another wish fulfillment thing, because science provides such legitimacy and it's it's so validating the idea of tripping your balls off and having some scientists ratify your experience by having terminology for what you're going through is kind of wish fulfillment okay. right, so technically uh, in terms of the podcast guy and i have not yet seen the movie <laughs> so we're now <laughs> going to lock ourselves away in isolation chambers for the next couple of hours sensory uh, deprivation <laughs> tanks yes exactly and talk through the movie, and then we will come back and talk to you, having seen the movie. Okay, good luck. <laughs> Hopefully you don't so, genetically regress. <laughs> I already have. We only have their word I killed a lizard. Oh, no. You didn't see it, and I have no recollection of it, and this whole hideous business is just a joke. The Indians have played on me to make the gringo look like a fool.
So Guy and I are locked in our isolation tanks, which unlike the tanks used in this movie are equipped with high def screens and good Wi-Fi, so we can talk to each other. Come to think of it, maybe these modern tanks don't exactly meet their core requirement of isolation. It's all right. I'm not listening. <laughs> so here's the thing for people new to our podcast. There are many movie podcasts out there where they either expect you to watch along with them and literally queue up the movie with what they're saying, or they barrel ahead in their discussion, assuming you are already intimately familiar with the movie. We do something a bit different. We do what we call a commentary style walkthrough where we take you through the movie in some detail while we make comments and jokes along the way, but you don't need to have seen it before or recently. So if you've never seen Altered States, or if you haven't seen it in a long time, or if you like the sound of our smooth voices, stick with us. If you already know the movie and, or you just want to hear more of our discussion with Sarah, which we totally understand and support, then just jump ahead to the next section of the podcast. There's bookmarks on the podcast, so you can do that. Okay, guys. So there is some chance that it really is just the two of us now that <laughs> we really are isolated, but let's plow ahead to 1980s altered states. All right. <laughs> So our first scene, we are introduced to Eddie and Arthur, and we start with a really intriguing image of a blue circle of light surrounded by tin metal. And eventually we see as the camera pulls out that this is a device sort of in the shape of a missile or a boiler filled with water and a human head floats into view, a head encased in a glass helmet and enmeshed in wires. And this is William Hurt playing Eddie. We wouldn't have recognized him at the time because it's his very first movie role. And I haven't watched any other Ken Russell movies, but, you know, I've heard about him and he's supposed to be a very kind of avant-garde director. And in this very first sequence, I can really see the visual influence of this guy. I think it's really dramatic. Yeah, the, the visuals get your attention right away because the helmet he's wearing in the tank is obviously something modern. But the tank itself looks like it's probably left over from the 1920s or, you know, maybe a spare from the Titanic or something. <laughs> right. Well, one of the things we'll find as they go along is that at this, the point the movie takes place, isolation tanks are already kind of old hat. Nobody's using them anymore. So they're using really an old piece of technology as part right. of this. And watching over William Hurt is Bob Balaban playing Arthur in a very 1970s beard and, and attire. And Bob Bellavan is a Renaissance man. He's been in everything. Before this, he was in Midnight Cowboy and Close Encounters. He's in most of the Christopher Guest films. He's directed films. He's been in Seinfeld. He writes children's novels. This guy just does everything, and I, I, I really like him. You know, it's funny. I've heard the name many times, and I've probably seen him in a dozen different things, and I did not recognize him <laughs> at all in this movie. So funny thing is another podcast to listen to where they call that the, that guy, right? When you see him <laughs> and you totally know who he is, but you don't know his name. He's that guy. <laughs> so apparently Weimer, Eddie has been in this tank for a long time. After five hours, Arthur finally pulls him out and Eddie reports having seen all sorts of hallucinations and mystical states. And he immediately wants to try this again next week. And they have this whole discussion. He doesn't know what he's looking for, but he knows there's something he can find with these, the states he gets into in an isolation tank. 
And he talks about the fact that multiple other scientists have been toying around with this area, but no one has put together a methodology. And he wants to do a methodology for capturing what's happening when you're hallucinating and when you're in these alternate states. I think it's pretty early on, maybe even in this scene, where they actually use the phrase altered states, mm -hmm. which is the title, right? So just looking at this whole scene, what do you think of this as introducing the film? It's, it's kind of dramatic and interesting, but, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? Oh, it, it grabbed me right away, which lends some credence to the idea that maybe I never did see mm -hmm. this movie because I always thought I had <laughs> seen the movie and mm -hmm. just not really clicked with it. But there was, uh, as I said when we were having an earlier discussion, there was nothing in this movie that rang a bell to me when I yeah, saw it. Yeah, that's true for me too. Well, what I remember, and it might have been from the trailers or something, was the last scene actually where they're going around the hallway and kind of lighting up and switching back and forth. Mm. But yeah, similar to you, I think I thought I'd seen this movie, but I don't think I really had. I think yeah. I'd just seen the ads and such for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we go from this to meeting Emily. She is an anthropologist played by Blair Brown. This is her first role. And I have a whole connection to her in terms of stuff she's been in. And she doesn't know Eddie yet, but <laughs> when he arrives at the party she's at, the door opens and literally he is encased in a halo of light in the doorway <laughs> and she looks at him and clearly she's really interested right off the bat. <laughs> I, I would love to have like a lighting person with me who could do that. <laughs> they end up having a conversation and there's a little bit of butting back and forth because Eddie is used to being the youngest person, the whiz kid, as he says. But it turns out Emily is a whiz kid, too. She has a PhD at 24, and Eddie is impressed. Yeah, I think he says he, he didn't get his till he was 25. <laughs> <laughs> and as we'll see is the way with Eddie, he immediately hits on her. <laughs> but And also the way of this movie is while he's hitting on her, they're talking about whether schizophrenia is a disease or actually an altered state of consciousness. <laughs> and. One of the things I really like about this script is they do not stop and do exposition. They integrate the exposition into normal conversations. So where you would normally be talking about someone with cooking or what you did today, they'll be talking about these bizarre drug-induced schizophrenic things, and it'll just be part of the conversation. So, so yeah. it just, you know, they're constantly putting in the exposition that way. Mm-hmm. Anthropology seems to attract good-looking women. So, you don't think schizophrenia can be reduced to a single etiological agent? I'm not even sure it's a disease. You think man is simply another state of consciousness? There's a body of evidence to support that. You don't like to talk about your work, do you? As a rule, no. Although the fact that you know, these scientific discourses on consciousness and schizophrenia and, you know, all that, the fact that that actually could be considered exposition <laughs> tells you something about <laughs> the kind of movie that we're watching. So Eddie is telling her that he's having to work on a project he doesn't like studying schizophrenia. He feels like they're going nowhere. He's been working with monkeys. And he says, but monkeys can't tell you what's going on inside their consciousness. 
you need human beings for that. But the stuff they're doing to the monkeys, you wouldn't be allowed to do to a human. And he's thinking, well, maybe we could emulate this by putting humans in isolation tanks to figure it out. And again, this is all happening while they're like walking outside, seducing each other, having kind of their first date. This is the kind of conversation they're having. (laughs) Right. And then Eddie just goes right to the point and he says, oh, I want to go home with you tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And she's fine with that, but she says, you know what? I have a roommate and we'd have to do it on the couch and, you know, it's easy to fall off the couch and all this. And he's like, that's okay with me. So they go home and do that. (laughs) (laughs) And they have hot sex on the couch and it is literally hot sex because there's a big red hot heater next to the couch (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and so that's an interesting visual effect because it's the bright reddish-orange glow, mm-hmm. you know, of a heat lamp type thing. Yeah, and because that's right there, they're sweating like pigs, <laughs> and it distracts Eddie, and he's looking at this heater while he's having sex with her, and she's naked, and we're seeing the whole thing, and she's like, what's up? And he's like, oh, I'm seeing God. Cause as he looks into this heater, he feels like the shape of the red elements in this heater are God. It is kind of like the eye of Sauron. Yeah. <laughs> and then he tells her he started having religious visions when he was nine and they continued until he was 16, but at 16, they stopped because he stopped believing because his father died and his father died in great pain. And religion didn't help him. It was suffering all the way to the end. And that kind of ended his religious feelings and ended his visions. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of, I, I think Chayefsky took a page from Joseph Conrad here, you know, because in Heart of Darkness, you have Mr. Kurtz, who says the horror, the horror. <laughs> and here, Eddie's dad, I think his last word was terrible. And that was his (laughs) verdict on, uh, on the whole situation. We have a hot, sexy scene with Blair Brown, you know, both of them naked and we get to Mm -hmm. see Blair Brown's breasts and everything. And yet they're talking about God and his father dying (laughs) and the end of his religion. What do you think about this? I I thought it was well done. I mean, it just seemed like a sort of natural, normal type of thing that people might talk about when they're not actively having sex. <laughs> I mean, after you're done, you usually have to stick around yeah, they, and talk. They don't wait till they're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I felt was, and I, and I really appreciated about this about the movie, is that this is a movie for adults. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're having sex is not embarrassing to them. The actors aren't embarrassed. The movie isn't embarrassed. They're not trying to cut away from it. This is what they're doing, and they're having this conversation. And I really appreciate that because I feel like the whole thing was, say, 1980s, as you know, talked about with Sarah in a bit, boobies films is like, oh, look, boobies, you know, and oh, look, you know, whatever. This isn't that. This is, we're all adults. We know what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're arguing about whether or not, it's kind of a cliche. Does this scene have artistic merit, you know, and all that. And, uh, you know, I think, I think in this scene, it fits in fine. It works. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we're going to see more of it. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Okay. So then we jump ahead to Eddie's next tank experience where he's immersed in the tank. And now he's hallucinating about what he just talked about with Emily, his father's death. There's lots of religious iconography. 
And particularly significant, there's a many-eyed goat. And for whatever reason, goats come up a lot in this film. There's this religious book he's trying to open, and he can't open it. Turns out what he has to do is he has to take this big knife and slash, presumably, the throat of the goat so that the blood goes onto the book, and then he can open the book. I'm not sure. I didn't, I didn't actually look this up, but I think in the book of Revelation, I think maybe the beast has multiple eyes and multiple yeah. horns. I know there's a dragon that has multiple heads and multiple horns, but I can't help thinking that this goat with the many horns and many eyes is supposed to be an allusion to that. Yeah. So we have the goat, we have blood, we have the blood being useful to accomplish your goal, and I, that, that won't keep coming back, so it's very interesting. And just in terms of visually and special effects, what did you think about this sort of overall kind of vision slash hallucination? Oh, I I enjoyed it. A sequence like this, at least for me, a sequence like this runs the risk of getting tedious. And Mm -hmm. and this didn't do that for me. Mm -hmm. It was just cut well enough and had just had enough interesting images that I stayed absorbed throughout the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. And overall, I was very impressed in general with the movie that way. There's one coming up, and I'll point out when we get there, where I felt like it didn't work. But almost everything, I think, does work. And it's not what I would have expected, especially from a director with kind of the reputation of Ken Russell. Now we have this interesting sequence here where Eddie and Emily have just slept together. They clearly have been together for a few months. They both have ended up where they're going to have positions teaching at Harvard. So they're going to be in the same area. And Emily says, well, since we're going to be around each other and we've been sleeping together, let's get married. <laughs> yeah. Eddie is clearly neutral <laughs> slash nonplussed <laughs> about this. He, he doesn't start beaming goofily. He's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, he warns her, you know, that I'm nuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Interesting thing about Emily, and she is consistent about this throughout the film. She knows that he's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) And she says, look, you know, when we have sex, I feel like I'm being harpooned by some raging monk in the act of receiving God. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that (laughs) line. And he finds it funny and they both find it funny. And I think that's part of their relationship is like, they understand the situation and they can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. I think that actually is kind of the basis of a real relationship, right? Yeah, at least to the extent that you you understand what you and your partner are about and going into <laughs> it for and so on. But this particular blend of personalities, it, it's, a, it's a risky thing, you know, because he's, <laughs> he's not a real people person in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a <laughs> self-person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she also says, look, you're a Faust freak. You are willing to sell your soul to find the greater truth. And she says something here that we're going to, it's going to come back at the end of the film. She says, but there is no greater truth. Hmm. So we'll see where that goes. (laughs) And at his response, you know, the very romantic, all right, we'll get married since it's that important to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he he does. He does say something modestly nice, like, uh, you know, that he wants to be with her too, or so, something, yeah. you know, he, he's got his own reasons for wanting to please her, you know, if that's what it <laughs> takes to be able to hang around her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's do well, it. He does say she's that he's not going to find a woman half as 
fascinating as she is, right? A fascinating yeah. intellectual, whatever he says. Yeah. And it's true. And one of the things I really like about Blair Brown's portrayal in this is that she is his equal. She is a scientist. She is right there with him. She's not at all the kind of dumb girlfriend stereotype. Hmm. And then just a little weird thing that was threaded throughout this conversation. It's hard to imagine how it would have been is that in the, in the process of this discussion, he has posited that schizophrenics may be trying to physically alter themselves to become their vision of themselves. Right. And, and this is actually not just thrown in because they're, they're actually watching tests going on on right. schizophrenics. So it's appropriate. Right. And his observation here becomes very important to the story, right? Changing mm -hmm. yourself and what you know. Right. And now, and I like this a lot about the script. I like any script or even TV show where they suddenly, so there was Battlestar Galactica, the new one, which we might watch at some point. It was after the second or third season, they simply skipped a year huh. and moved ahead and it pissed off a lot of their fans. But, and in this case, they simply have seven years passed. And what I love about that in the script is it lets you just reset everything and move on. It clears out a whole lot of crap that most scripts and other things try to deal with, where they try to tell you everything that happened. So right. we just move ahead seven years. They now have multiple kids. Eddie is a family man. And they're getting a divorce because Eddie can't mm -hmm. take being a family man. <laughs> right. And, and it's kind of a friendly divorce. And I mean, she actually still loves him and has made that very clear. But right. he just can't deal. The problem he has, and he, he talks to Arthur about this, his friend Bob Bellabat, says, look, for the last seven years, I've published two papers a year, nothing of interest. I'm making no progress. And also they had moved, so they're no longer near the isolation tank he was using. He hasn't been doing the experiments. And he says, Emily's quite content to go on with this life. She insists she's in love with me, whatever that is. What she means is she prefers the senseless pain we inflict on each other to the pain we would otherwise inflict on ourselves. But I'm not afraid of that solitary pain. In fact, if I don't strip myself of all this clatter and clutter and ridiculous ritual, I shall go out of my fucking mind. So this is a very intellectualized thing about love. He doesn't believe in it. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, they're set up, if I remember right, they're not getting the divorce right away. They're going to yeah. have a separation while they go off and pursue their career. She's going to Africa or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Nairobi, yeah, and he's going to Mexico, as we'll see, yep. Yeah, so he's like, oh, we'll get around to divorcing next year. <laughs> this story is just told very efficiently. I mean, we're only about 20 minutes in, and we already totally understand William Hurt's character. We totally understand Blair Brown. We know who Bob Balaban is. We know the situation and they've already had the beginning and end of their marriage you know, all in mm -hmm. 20 minutes. So now we get to what's really, I would say the central point of the whole film, which is Eddie has been planning to go to Mexico. There's a group of Indians there called Hinchy Indians in the film. Now I looked this up. I could not find any reference to them. So I think they were created for the film. Yeah, and that was, I think, Sarah. Her opinion was they were kind of a kind of a mishmash of different traditions. They are described as an isolated tribe in central Mexico that still practices ancient rituals using a hallucinatory drug that is supposed to evoke a common experience in all users. And I think that common experiencing is something he's after. You know, he wants something that's leading you to some kind of truth. Right. Eddie feels that religion is really about the self, and he 
talks about the fact that there are multiple religions like Buddhism where there isn't really a God. And really what we're after in religion is ourselves. And once we understand that, we know the self is inside us and now we know where to look. And his whole point is he's trying to look inside himself to find the self or the true God or what he calls the first self, mm. kind of the first person, the proto human. Yeah. And he's told that the drug Mahinchis use is supposed to evoke old memories, even ancient ones. So he travels to the mountains of Mexico and the Hinchi agreed to let him join their ceremony. And it's worth mentioning perhaps that he's going with another professor who also is fluent in Spanish and, and right. you know, Hispanic culture. And he acts as the mediator between, between the natives and, and Eddie. Yeah. And I leave him out of my discussion here because he really is just someone who's interpreting the natives. He has no actual role himself. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although he does end up helping out Eddie in a few minutes here. Yeah. <laughs> Once they've agreed to let Eddie join the ceremony, we see the three of them, you know, Eddie, the chief and his friend there entering a cave. And I thought this was a really striking image. It, it is, and I, I have two thoughts on that one. First, I'm wondering, if, I think when we see these flashes of light throughout the following hallucinations throughout the movie, I think we often see that cave entrance mm. as kind of the crack that mm. the medicine man is going to predict he'll see at the end of his vision. Mm. And second, this looked just like it could have been pulled from that movie Alien, which came out a year earlier, and when they're wandering around on LV-426 going to the derelict spacecraft, the three people could just as easily be those those three astronauts on the surface of that planet. And that's what it looked like to me, and it reminded yeah. me of it very strongly. Yep. And you're right, because I didn't mention this, but earlier the chief had said that he would, before he reached his ultimate thing, he would see a crack in the universe and he would go through that and that's how he'd meet himself. And then, as you say, we see this crack that is the cave and it's all very dramatic. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. And then we just, again, you know, very efficient film. We just move forward and there's a bunch of Indians playing horns and drums around a fire. And they're all covered in mud and paint. They're boiling up a potion and they just keep tossing in different things, you know, presumably different mushrooms and, and other things. Mm -hmm. Each person around the circle seems to toss in something. It's a real witch's brew. <laughs> and now this is the chief or someone who is kind of the, the head spiritual person of the tribe. But it, to me, I couldn't tell the difference. So I was going to say it's the chief. Yeah. And he's holding a root. And he's chanting, and he's right next to William Hurt. Through the interpreter, he tells Eddie to put out his hand, palm up, so he can hold the root. <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe an unethical <laughs> bit of bait and switch, <laughs> because it has nothing to do with the root. When Eddie holds out his hand, the chief grabs this really big knife, <laughs> and he grabs Eddie's hand, and he slices between the skin, between the middle fingers, 
Now, I thought it was the webbing between the thumb and the index finger. Yeah, absolutely. That's what he did, which is, seems particularly painful. <laughs> so, and yeah. then he, you know, forcefully holds Eddie's hand over the pot and has his blood drip into the pot. Yeah. And he's, he's struggling against it. He's horrified. <laughs> yeah. And this is, uh, this surprised me because Eddie's supposed to be this very open-minded person. He's trying to have this whole experience. He wants to meet with these people. And the minute the guy does this, he's like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> he doesn't want to be involved at all in having his hand sliced open. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. he really, he freaks out. And at first he's supposed to be, you know, Mr. Scientist and all that. And, and you'd, you'd think he'd have that perspective about, well, you're not going to bleed to death from that. Even, but, but on the other hand, it is an unpleasant thing and it's probably something he's never experienced anything like before. And I don't like to get cut myself. So I, I can sympathize <laughs> with him, but he really, uh, he could have handled it a little more evenly. I think. Yeah. But, so his friend bandages him up in the meantime, the chief is really excited about this blood in the potion. So he takes a wooden ladle and dips it in and tastes the potion with William Hurt's blood. And he is really, really happy about that. We see his <laughs> face light up. <laughs> and the potion, it, it looks good. It looks like there's actual coagulated blood floating <laughs> in it. I mean, it's, well, good may not be correct, but it looks <laughs> convincing, I'll say. <laughs> so after he's had his hand bandaged up and he's calmed down a bit, Eddie can't help but try the potion himself. So he uses the ladle, takes a bit of the potion, stands up, and instantly there's a storm and fireworks, and he sees a cave drawing on the wall of a lizard, which will become important in a moment. And the fireworks are kind of neat because they're going off for just minutes on end, and then it's it's uh, an interesting effect because to talk about it, oh, there's fireworks, he, it sounds cheesy, but it actually wasn't. It was actually uh, pretty interesting, I thought. Yeah, and as it goes on, it's not like fireworks in the distance. It's like all these things going off right around him. And I oh, kind of yeah. suspect that they were trying to annoy William Hurt as an actor because they were <laughs> doing all these sparklers all around him as he's having to walk along. <laughs> he also has images of Emily and him in a kind of weird circumstance. They're sitting at a table. They're very dapper they're both wearing white, like they're an upper class folks at an outside table having tea. Behind them is this whole image of flowers. And then very suggestively, Emily eats a spoonful of ice cream. And it's very decadent and sexual the way she eats the ice cream. Yeah. And I, I think when this is intercut with the scenes of the snake, I think the ice cream is like a stand-in for the apple of Eden. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and at some point, you know, she has him taste it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. While having all these visions, Eddie wanders out of the cave, and he flashes between seeing the Indians in mass dancing around a mushroom-shaped rock, and he sees this snake, and he sees Emily eating her ice cream and feeding it to him, and then the snake is wrapping around his head and smothering him, and he grabs it and he bites into it, and then he's looking at his hand with the wound from that cut. And then a little lizard appears on his hand out of the cut. Then he sees a large monitor lizard in front of him. So these are the kind of things that probably people thought were dragons back in the day, right? This is a mm -hmm. multi-foot lizard. 
he's looking at this lizard and it turns into, to me, what is the most intriguing image in the entire movie. The lizard turns into Emily and she's naked. She's lying on the ground like a sphinx. She has her hands pushing her body up. You can see her breasts and he's watching her laying on the ground. And then over a period of minutes, this is really quite a long time, dust washes over both of them. You know, it's just blowing over both of them as they're lying on the ground and she's there in the kind of sphinx pose. And eventually both of them turn into dust statues. And then mm -hmm. over a period of a couple of minutes, those dust statues are eroded away by the wind. And I thought this was an amazing effect. I mean, even today, there's, there's nothing about that that seemed cheesy to me. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really well done. I thought it was, uh, it was good and it didn't, it's one of those scenes that could be artsy fartsy in the wrong mm -hmm. hands, but it, mm -hmm. it's just, it wasn't tedious at all. I was like, oh, this is neat. I'm, yeah, just sort of riveted. They're both nude at this point, and the nudity is an essential part of this scene, and it wouldn't be as hauntingly beautiful without it. And that's where mm -hmm. I feel like we may have lost something today where we don't want to exploit people, so we don't want to show them nude on screen, but that also means we lose some artistic things. Oh, sure. The Emily statue in particular has a, has a fantastic butt. <laughs> You may be now just, uh, you know, destroying my entire argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't see a big contradiction between the erotic and the, uh, <laughs> the vulgar, you know, they have their place. <laughs> there is a great butt shot at the end of her, by the way, right? <laughs> but we're both here for the art. We only read this for the articles, not. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> right, so, um. And then all of a sudden, after, you know, I don't know, a minute or two, I didn't time it, but pretty good amount of time watching these sort of sand statues get eroded away. Suddenly we switch back to reality. It's the next morning. And in front of William Hurt, there's a dead monitor lizard with its guts torn out. It's really graphic. Mm -hmm. And it turns out this is bad juju. <laughs> yeah. Because during his trip, he killed a lizard that was sacred to the Hinchy. We don't see him getting given the cold shoulder. We, we, we learned this from seeing him walking with his buddy away from the Well, there village. is one shot where they're all looking at him. Mm, okay. And nothing's, and that's before we know he's in trouble. Ah, uh, okay. They're all looking at him silent. And I think afterwards you realize, okay, they're kind of condemning him, but you don't know uh, what that is when you first see it. Yeah. Okay. But then, yes, he's walking away with his buddy and he's pissed off because he's been accused of something that he can't even remember doing. The thing is that lizard was sacred to them. And we'd seen that in the fact that they had, uh, lizard drawings on the cave walls. Right. But they were nice enough to let him take a mason jar of the potion with his <laughs> blood and all that other stuff in it with him for analysis. Oh, yeah. I thought this was interesting because. There is a stereotypical journey to find a guru and have the mystical experience of the drugs and all that. All right. In this case though, he did that and he screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a little, uh, variation on the pattern where, you know, instead of getting enlightenment, you get a, a boot in the butt. <laughs> yeah. He was rejected and found wanting. Yeah. And he was found so, wanting because he couldn't hold his liquor. 
<laughs> Essentially, yeah. Uh, don't eat uh, the next lizard. <laughs> it returns to civilization, so to speak. Can't give up on all this, is doing these experiments, and we see him in some kind of tank again, and we watch another full-blown hallucination, this time of naked people who seem to be writhing in hell and jumping into lava, and it kind of goes on for a while. And I'm going to say, I was really disappointed because everything up to now, and I think everything after this, totally worked for me. And here I was like, oh, this is masturbatory stuff it doesn't fit it's it just it just felt like a amateur filmmaker throwing this stuff in i don't know how you felt about this yeah i i didn't have that reaction i just kind of went along with it i found it interesting <laughs> okay well that's good and it turns out where what's happening here is he's not he is in a sort of tank but it's no longer a water tank he's just in a box with a window and Arthur and a guy named Mason, who he's played by Charles Hayde. He's been in the background of a few scenes before this, but hasn't really done anything. The two of them are watching over Eddie in this box. And Eddie is totally out of it, spouting nonsense. Arthur says he often blacks out for hours at a time at this point. Mason is not impressed at all with his ravings. We don't really know what his role is, but he seems to have some amount of authority as a doctor. And mm -hmm. he insists that they stop this experimentation immediately. It's dangerous. They're supposed to be reputable scientists. Arthur says, well, I brought you here to see if you could stop him because I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Despite his objections, Mason is roped into taking a look with them at an isolation tank that they just found out about. So, you know, they haven't had an isolation tank in years. They just found out about one in the basement of somewhere. So Mason goes along with them to check it out. But he does say that he wants to examine this drug before Eddie takes it again, but Eddie's not interested. They go look at the tank. It's covered in crust. It clearly hasn't been used in many years. I think an interesting thing about the movie is this movie takes place at a point where the whole isolation tank thing was already passe. Right. Nobody was using these anymore. And Mason explicitly just refuses to cooperate in this whole thing. I think he has the best speeches in the whole film. <laughs> he gets the oh, best yeah. lines. Yeah. He's, a, he's a fun character. I like him. All right. Do what you want to do. I think you're both irresponsible as hell. So don't call me anymore, Arthur, and tell me you're worried about Eddie putting all this shit into him. I'm telling you right now, don't you put any more of that shit into him until you know a hell of a lot more about it. I've offered you the use of my lab and all the rats you can cut. That's as much as I want to be implicated in your dumb experiments. Get your dumb hamburger. I already got my own date. I'm an hour late for. The first scene that I really got a good look at him, well, not a perfect look, but a somewhat good look, I thought he might be a young Stephen Root. <laughs> it turns out he wasn't. When they give us a close-up of him, I could see that it clearly wasn't. But I don't know. There's something, something about him reminded me of Stephen Root. So. Which is a good thing, because I like him a lot. <laughs> so the funny thing we see in the movie is Mason refuses to cooperate with them. But in the very next scene, <laughs> he clearly can't stay away, because they're doing their first try in this new isolation tank, and he shows up to see what's going on. And inside the tank, so they, you know, Eddie is inside the tank floating in water with salt in it so that he will float. And he is going on about how he's experiencing grasslands and the savannas, 
and he's really in this landscape and he's becoming one of these prototypical people and it's the birth of man. <laughs> and Mason is just amused by this. He's like walking around the tank, smiling, you know, the whole thing is kind of silly. <laughs> Tells Arthur that he thinks this just sounds like a bad trip. Then Eddie starts talking about how he's killing a goat and he gets really intense. And then they hear a roar from the tank. <laughs> he, he goes into some detail. I don't remember exactly what he says, but he's like, I'm, I'm ripping its throat open. I'm drinking its hot blood. <laughs> that, that might've given Mason a little bit of worry there. Right. And then they hear this roar, but at this point they don't do anything. <laughs> hours pass. And after hours have passed, they get tired of it and they open the tank and Eddie's mouth is covered in blood. Hmm. And his face seems painted, although I think the idea is that it's a, the crusted salt from the water. Yeah, that makes sense. I noticed that, but I didn't realize at the time that it was it was salt water in there, but that right. makes perfect sense. But it does echo the same treatment that the Bruvas, you know, the medicine men, had put on their faces, that they right. were all whitened up like that. Yep. And he can't talk, but he's very aware, and so he insists on getting a pad of paper so he can write on it. <laughs> One of the things I'll say is even in this state, he's better at writing than I am, <laughs> <laughs> but he tells them on paper that he wants the blood on his face analyzed and he wants his neck x-rayed before I reconstitute. So he insists that his body was actually changing. He was becoming one of these proto humans and he wants proof of that. And Mason has another great rant here. Oh, stop talking shit. You trying to say your dumb hallucination is externalized? What do you write? Not common aphasia, time, space, fallout from the hallucination. You are a fucking flake, Jessup. So get dressed and I'm going to take you over the Brigham and do a complete workup on you. You are a very sick dude, you dumb son of a bitch. And I'm going to look down your throat and do some skull films, get a CAT scan, maybe even an arteriogram. And I'd like an unbiased eye and look at those EEG tracings. Oh. So they take him to get examined and they get him x-rayed and then they go into the x-ray room. Interesting little point here. Did you notice who the x-ray technician was? I didn't know. It was John Larroquette. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. I'll be damned. That one, I, right I only realized that because I read about it. You wouldn't know. So there's nothing about him oh. that would, you know, yep. I'll be darned. I used to watch Night Court all the time. <laughs> I think he narrated uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. <laughs> okay. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. So they're all looking at the x-rays with John Larroquette, and there's some weird things around the throat. But Mason is like, look, none of us know how to look at an x-ray. We can't deal with this. We need an expert. He asked John Larroquette, who is kind of the expert on call, who's reading x-rays, and that's Dr. Wissenschaft. And we're halfway through the movie, so I'm going to hand it over to Guy. <laughs> so Mason heads down to Dr. Wissenschaft's lab and he's got the x-ray light board with the little pictures hanging on it. This is a little joke, I think, because Wissenschaft, his name literally means Dr. Science. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the I did not look up the actor, but he's one of those guys that you would know, like you know, mm. like you've seen in a bunch of stuff, and you mm. would know, but you don't know who he is. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Mason suggests that there might be something a little off kilter about these X-rays. When he's talking to Arthur and Eddie, he's like, "Oh, there's nothing going on. This is all stupid, etc." When he's alone with this guy, he's like, "Yeah, there's something weird." going on here mm, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to give an inch to those guys <laughs> right <laughs> so the good doctor looks at the x-rays and says well uh yeah this guy's a fucking gorilla <laughs> <laughs> so apparently this drug does have a little something extra to it a little extra kick it, well i think the whole idea right is the drug plus the isolation tank right the isolation mm. tank is like taking it times 10 that's yeah, kind of the idea know, here, that, right? That was something I was wondering about why, you know, why isn't this a common problem among the Inchi Indians? Yeah, you know, they just why? don't have too many isolation tanks around. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe having the people around them helps keep them connected and so forth. <laughs> yeah. All right, makes sense, sure. So, Jessup, who has, I, I think at this point, they're separated, uh, Emily and Jessup, both. But in my notes, I call him Jess. In your notes, you call him Eddie, same person. <laughs> I think he's separated from his wife. I don't think mm-hmm. they're actually divorced yet. But he's sleeping with one of his students. We heard him mention earlier on with Arthur and Macy, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go spend the night with one of my students tonight. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I don't know if this is a sign of the times when the movie was made, or obviously it's part of a reflection of his character, but... The idea of a professor sleeping with his student is like, yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe she's a graduate student. You know? <laughs> At some point, you got to let them make their own decisions. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's the whole challenge with the whole that whole thing, right? Which is everyone's an adult, but on the other hand, the professor has a power relationship, especially when they're, they're oh, a student. Sure. You know, yeah. So, but it was interesting. Like he's not worried about any of this. <laughs> <It's just good>. <laughs> <laughs> They're sleeping together, literally sleeping at this point, and he wakes up to find that his muscles are rippling in an unusual way. And it's not, I don't mean rippling sculpted muscles, I mean literally rippling. <laughs> they're, they're pulsing and throbbing and all that stuff that you don't really want your muscles to do too much. Yeah, and this is his arm, and the special effects guy they used had a, a unique technique for being able to do exactly that. So they hired him because he had this whole thing where he'd have these air bladders that would, you know, do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a decent effect. There are moments when he, when it looks better than other moments, but still <laughs> it's, it's good overall, but it looks terribly painful. And especially, I think when we were talking with Sarah, I mentioned that sometimes I wake up with a terrible Charlie horse. And that's, I mean, that was the first thing that I thought of when I saw, you know, his cringing and grimacing and groaning and, you know, it really <laughs> looks painful, <laughs> but it's also fascinating. So he's a little torn, I guess. He goes into the bathroom so he doesn't bother his student. <laughs> he has another little trip in there. He doesn't actually take any of the mushroom potion. It just kind of is one of those flashback type things, I guess. But he recovers from it soon enough, and he's standing in the doorway, and the student wakes up and asks if he's okay, and he says, yeah, I'm going to go take some notes. <laughs> he leaves the room. <laughs> Emily and his kids have been off, I think, in Africa, and they've returned to America 
Eddie comes to meet them at the airport and take them to Emily's new house that has been arranged for her. Emily talks about her, her trip. She was observing baboons, and she mentions her observation that contrary to popular belief, the baboons are sometimes carnivorous. And uh, <laughs> this was one of those little throwaway lines that set off some alarm bells in my head. You know, like, uh, I thought, well, this is, this is some heavy-duty foreshadowing. And in a way it is, but... Not quite as yeah. bad as I feared. Well, she also mentions, and this is foreshadowing for Jurassic Park, she mentions mm. that she has proof that the baboons were communicating with each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't apply to this movie. but <laughs> Although that, that remark about the baboons communicating, Eddie wants to hear those recordings mm. because he wants to see if they sound familiar. Like, is, <laughs> is he going to recognize some hot gossip mm. from the baboons, you know, when he, when he hears them? <laughs> and Mason, it turns out, tattled to Emily about all these experiments that he's still very displeased and worried about. And Emily is also very, very worried about him. Jessup wants to get back to these experiments. He, he can't get enough of them. But understandably, nobody wants to help him <laughs> because they think he's putting himself at terrible risk. You know, they're trying to look out for him. But finally, after some cajoling, Emily says she'll look at Jessup's notes and data tomorrow. But the way she acquiesces, he's kind of dissatisfied with it. She doesn't sound super enthused. Yeah, and then we see her have a call with Mason where she says, yeah, I think you're right. He's about to crack up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oddly enough, Jessup has gotten tired of waiting for help with his experiments, and I think maybe that was her lack of apparent enthusiasm may have been the last straw. He went back to the isolation tank alone and decided to just dose himself up. Yeah. He comes out of the isolation tank as a hairy ape man, <laughs> which is, we sort of had a little little foreshadowing of that with the x-rays, but this is a whole nother level. He, he is actually an ape man now. He's very humanoid. He's not in a gorilla suit or anything like that. He's just basically a naked guy with a whole lot of hair all over his body and sort of a primate-like face, you know, but very close to being that human body. I would have expected that, oh, we'd see a couple shots of him and then we'd be back to Eddie. No, we spend the next, I don't know, 10 to 20 minutes with him <laughs> as an ape man. Oh, yeah. And, this is, yeah. and we get the full, the full ape Monty. <laughs> a lot of derriere shots. So if you weren't into the Emily statues but earlier, <laughs> then uh, here's another option for you. <laughs> so he comes out of the tank. He's a hairy ape man. He's locked in the isolation tank room. But down in that basement... There's another guy who's working late. I'm not sure if he's a janitor or another yeah. science scientist or what his deal is. Uh, he's not a scientist. He looks like a janitor, yep. Okay. Whoever he is, he notices that something is askew with the with the room, the entryway to the tank chamber. He notices the door is open, maybe. Whatever it is, he goes in to check it out. He opens up the door to the tank chamber, and boom, out comes the ape. <laughs> and at first, the ape runs from him. But before too long, he's running from the ape. And it's sort of a role reversal all of a sudden. The guy runs and gets a security guard. In the process, the ape is scared off. And they go looking for him. 
and a security guard calls the main security station for backup. This must be a huge building because <laughs> it not only does it have a lot of security people available, but it's also got the infrastructure, the boiler room and the pipes and all that stuff. There's just a ton of stuff down there. Mm. And the ape is hiding among all these pipes. To make a long story short, the ape beats both of the first two guys almost to death. And two other guards show up as he's in the process of doing that. I think that. these are actual cops. These are the ones that are called. Oh, yeah. they're actual cops. Okay. I, I, I had thought he was calling other security guards. But either, either way, they're guys with uniforms, but they don't have to deal with the ape because he runs off and he gets out of the building. And he has a few little adventures. He has a run-in with some stray dogs, and he climbs up some water spouts and jumps on top of a car and, you know, various, various stuff, fights with some of the dogs. And eventually he ends up following the dogs to a zoo. At one point in his travels through the zoo, he sees a tree branch conveniently hanging over a fence, which has been the helpful thing in many video games I've played. <laughs> So he climbs up the tree, climbs along the branch, and drops down into the pen. And there's a giant herd of prey animals in there, some kind of herbivores. I, I think, according to later dialogue, it seems to be some kind of sheep, but they're not mm -hmm. your fluffy white sheep. They're more <laughs> like, you know, African savanna sheep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and this ape Jessup, he ends up eating one of the sheep raw. <laughs> so he's really getting into the role. A little while later, a zoo security guard finds the dead sheep's carcass, and right next to it, there's a naked and de-aped <laughs> and a very peacefully sleeping Eddie lying right next to it. And interestingly, he, he isn't bloody. He's just sort of transformed back into normal human-looking guy. Doesn't have any blood on, on him that's obvious, but still, you know, it could be kind of an obvious inference that he's lying right next to the body of this eaten sheep, then it's possible that maybe when he gets let out of jail, maybe it's just on bail and he's going to end up going on trial for this eventually. But that's apparently a remote concern because I don't think they ever allude to it mm -hmm. in the conversations yeah. to come. Well, or more importantly, the people that he almost killed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they seem to be still blaming it on an ape that was loose in the basement, which is uh, probably just the way he likes it. <laughs> Emily and Mason come and pick him up from jail, and he can only remember the things that made sense to the ape's mental framework, the things that an ape would be likely to be able to categorize and remember. He has partial memories of chasing the dogs and of eating the sheep. Mason shows up a little later at Jessup's place. This is in the, the wee hours, like, I don't know, 3.30 mm. or 4 in the morning. He's picked up the clothes from the security office, and the scuttlebutt there was that there had been some kind of ape in the isolation tank room that almost killed a security guard. And actually, I, I had thought that either or both of those two people that he attacked were, were goners, but that would be a little too dark for this movie, I guess, <laughs> Anyway, they, they lived, so that's good for everybody. Emily finally does get around to examining Eddie's data, and she listens to the tape where he experiences eating a goat and drinking the blood and all that stuff. This is the next day, and then that night, Emily calls him. She says she's in a wild panic, probably from listening to the tape where he was <laughs> drinking goat blood and all that. 
And he comes over. Emily doesn't want him doing this experiment again until they understand more. But he gets her to admit that, being a scientist herself, she, she does understand his enthusiasm for the whole project. But that's as far as she'll go. She understands, but she doesn't want him doing it again. <laughs> At least not until they know more. She also wants a little love and reassurance. <laughs> and they are still married, I guess. So Joseph ends up staying the night. And the next thing you know, Arthur, Mason, and Emily have all caved. And they're back with Eddie at the isolation tank. Yeah, I think this is what we call enablers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, after the wacky events, it would be hard to resist. Yeah, on the one <laughs> hand, you want your friend to be safe. But on the other hand, <laughs> this is pretty funky. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a tough call. They do at least have a sedative ready. That, and, that was... You know, in his favor, Eddie says, look, if something happens to me, sedate me while I'm in the tank. Don't let me get out, because once I get out, I'll be able to do stuff. Right. Although, if he's actually psychotic, the three of them together might not be enough to really subdue <laughs> him. But I, I guess they're just pretty confident. Who knows? <laughs> Over two hours go by with him in the tank, and Emily starts getting nervous. Well, she's been nervous, but she gets more and more nervous. She wants to stop the experiment, not because she thinks Jessup's full of blue mud, but because she actually believes him. She thinks something big really is likely to happen. And she turns out to be very right. <laughs> Pretty soon, everything just starts to go to hell. There's a blinding blue light begins coming out of this tank and the tank actually becomes transparent you can mm. you can see eddie inside the tank and he's going through some awful transformation you see some kind of heart beating you know it's not clear yeah, what you're saying. Yeah. it almost looks like uh it looks like a view of a fetus or something at first and then as it became a little clearer, or maybe as I focused on it more, it was more evident that it was kind of, it was the man in there, but you were mm. seeing all of his circulatory system mm. and organs and stuff all pulsating and whatnot. Yeah. And Eddie himself, you get different views of him. You get the, the pulsating view, but then you also get a view of him more as a physical being. Uh, or non-transparent physical being where he's bloating up and, and shifting shape. His head is becoming fat and round. He almost looks like a mini state puffed marshmallow man. <laughs> and he's not ape-like at all now. He's more, it's just sort of more distorted, more like a couch potato or something, you know, just really, <laughs> it looks very, it's a very painful kind of swelling. It looks like. And he gets more hallucinatory effects. And then there, well, th that'll happen a little bit later, I think, in the sequence here. Because before we really get into the heavy tripping, I think Mason and Arthur are knocked out by the blue light. And Emily is the sole survivor or the sole awake person. And she's got to deal with all this nonsense that's going on because now <laughs> the blue light is like sucking the tank into the floor. And there's a whirlpool in the room where before there was just a floor. <laughs> the pipes on the ceiling are rattling and flopping around like pool noodles, and they're leaking water everywhere, and it's just very chaotic. But Emily struggles through it all, and she gets to Eddie. In this sequence, I don't remember exactly where, but I remember there was one part of the trip that had some really neat particle effects. 
And I wanted to mention that because it struck me that they looked precise enough that they looked like they might be very early CGI. Hmm. I could be wrong, but these effects, they were like geometric particles, like they were conforming to curves and all that, right. but three-dimensional. You mentioned the swirling. I think we're seeing the clouds that are supposed to be kind of the beginning of the universe. And he's been regressing mm-hmm. over and over. And now he's getting to the true beginning. And right. if he goes much longer, there's not going to be anything left. Right. 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 Yeah. You definitely get the sense that something very, very drastic and climactic is, is happening. Emily eventually, by hugging Jessup and embracing him and just holding on. She seems to somehow cool things down and save the day. Eventually everything settles down and all this whirlpool that we've seen, all the sprinkling pipes and all that, a lot of it seems to maybe have been part of a hallucination. The room is a mess, but it's <laughs> not not as severely damaged as you would have expected from all that so we've seen. So after this, you're still not a believer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it could be some of that, what did Mason call it? Quantum mumbo jumbo, you know, or like, uh, yeah, it, it, it existed in one state, then it existed in another state. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. They, there's a lot of interpretations you could put on it, but the point seems to be that Eddie really, really had a wild trip. <laughs> and fortunately Mason and Arthur did not die. They, and it ends up, they both survived and they're even able to function and they're all back at Eddie's place. And Emily's talking to Mason. Eddie is knocked out on his bed. He's just out for the count. And Emily is complaining to Mason. She doesn't think Jessup ever really loved her. He loved God and he loved truth. That was what he cared about, not ordinary people. The whole conversation she's having with Mason, they're moving between different rooms in this apartment. And it's kind of an interesting approach because the camera is outside of the apartment, looking at them through windows. It's sort of conveniently, for some reason, all the windows are open. <laughs> I just thought this was an interesting visual effect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't notice that it was consistently from outside the apartment, but I, I remember thinking it was a well, well set up scene. At any rate, now Eddie has consummated his relationship with God and truth. <laughs> I liked Emily's line here. She says, "That's consummation. <laughs> he finally got it off with God. He finally embraced the absolute. Was finally ravished by truth, and he got down here, destroyed him. <laughs> <laughs> kind of blasphemous, <laughs> <laughs> but that was pretty much what he was aiming to do. <laughs> so there's a brief scene where Arthur and Mason argue about what comes next. This whole experience has made Arthur into a convert. He really is fascinated now mm. by the prospects, and he, he wants to get some student volunteers for more <laughs> experiments. And Mason ridicules him for that because Arthur has always been the, the moral, ethical one. Mm-hmm. Mason himself is just exhausted. He doesn't want to hear any more about this, at least not tonight and probably never. <laughs> Jessup comes around briefly when Emily looks in on him, and she suggests it might be a good idea for Mason to look him over. And he agrees that it's a good idea. And then uh, the next day, 
Eddie is awake, and he seems to be a changed man. He talks about his love for Emily and for his kids, and he's never done that directly. You know, he's sort of alluded to it or, you know, hinted at it or whatever, but he's never just come right out and said. Right, and Emily had said, I'm never going to hear you say that, yeah. (laughs) And he, he says about his experience, his latest experience with the mushroom potion, he says he found the final truth that he was looking for, and it was hideous. He says it's just nothing. He goes on to say that truth is what's transitory. It's human life that's real. And that realization, he thinks, could completely change his life and how he views his family and so forth. But he's afraid that the realization has come too late because he has this truth in his system now, and he's not sure that he can ever get out from under its thumb now. Early in the film, Emily told him exactly this, right? There isn't Mm -hmm. a truth. There's nothing you're going to find. Right. And she was right. Yeah. (laughs) Echoing her own words back to her. Yeah. Sure enough, it doesn't take long for the the (laughs) weird cosmic energy to come back. He suspected it and he was right. His arm starts rippling again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the usual symptoms. Emily tries to help while well, he, he's turning back into this. I don't think I mentioned it, but one of the effects that we saw in that great big blue light tank scene was that when he was in his marshmallow man form, he <laughs> would have this kind of staticky television appearance to him, almost like he was a special effect of what, which he was, but you know, it was. It was just, he didn't, he didn't look entirely physical. It was like sort of Mm -hmm. an energy being almost Mm -hmm. represented by this sort of television static effect. And he's getting that. She tries to help him. When she does, she gets zapped and she turns into this glowing red veiny figure, almost Mm -hmm. looks like somebody who's been skinned, but she's glowing too in that same sort of energetic off kilter kind of way. And she also looks to be in a terrible lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Eddie, he is resisting this. He he doesn't want any more of this final truth. It can go pound salt for all he cares. So he's trying to snap out of it. Mainly the way he does that is by going from wall to wall in the hallway where he's standing and pounding on the walls with his arms and fists. <laughs> and each time he pounds on the walls, It seems like he regains a tiny bit of self-control, and he does that enough, and this snaps him out of it. But he's snapped out of it, but Emily still isn't. She still is in that glowing red, veiny figure who looks to be tormented. He makes his way to her. I think he kind of has to stumble and crawl to get to her, but he makes his way to her, and he embraces her, and as soon as he does... She's fixed, too. And then they're just normal, naked people embracing. (laughs) And that's the end. And it was a surprisingly happy end for me because I was really expecting something much, much darker. (laughs) The final shot here, we get a very nice Blair Brown butt shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay, and now we will return back to Sarah. (laughs) <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, we're back, and wow, I have to say, when watching a movie about psychedelics, it's almost like no time has passed at all. <laughs> <laughs>
So, Guy, uh, you mentioned, I mean, you're not sure you've ever seen this before. What was your kind of just overall reaction? I really enjoyed it. The whole thing, just just about every aspect of it, I, I like. You have a few trips throughout it that were well done with the imagery. It sort of induces a sensation in you, even if you're, no, I wasn't completely sober when I watched it. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't on anything too exotic, but, uh, it may be a requirement um, actually. <laughs> yeah. You probably understood it better than most people. <laughs> Maybe. I liked that part. I like just the, the whole, whole story in general. It's not, I, I was expecting something more art house, like more, yeah. uh, you know, cryptic and it. It's actually kind of a thriller in some ways with this more mm-hmm. metaphysical stuff added in on top of all that. And the ending, it it turned out very differently than I expected because mm-hmm. I got to a point maybe a third of the way in where I figured, well, all right, he's going to end up eating his family. That's how it's going to end. That <laughs> doesn't turn out that way. So I was, I was pleased. <laughs> I had all these stark images that intrigued me from it and this vague memory of whether it seemed or not. But I also had the impression from popular culture and everything that, oh, actually, it's a really kind of bad movie right or cheesy or whatever i was blown away i mean i it was a real impactful experience on me both the more psychedelic aspects but also like you said the thriller aspects i mean it really felt like oh crap what's what's happening now Mm -hmm. and the imagery was way better than i expected there were there were maybe 30 seconds of the psychedelic imagery that i would have cut out because i thought it kind of went a little far which is interesting because Ken Russell was the director and the first director had already been fired by Patty Chayefsky and then Patty Chayefsky oh, wow. tried to fire Ken Russell because he was literally showing up trying to direct the film. I mean, he was showing up saying okay. the color of that wall is wrong. You know, the look of that thing is wrong. And Ken Russell is like, I got to be the director. <laughs> yeah. And he was very, very faithful to Chayefsky's words, but he said, I have to do the actual directing. So he had to kick Chayefsky off the set. He tried mm. to get Russell fired, but they're like, you already fired one director. We've already made the film. <laughs> it's time <laughs> for us to actually finish this thing. One of the things Chayefsky wanted to do was much more expansive visuals. He, you know, the, he wanted this idea of your spirit expanding through the galaxy as a puff of smoke and all this. And Ken Russell was like, look, I need to do something that people are going to understand mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's connected to human experience. Mm-hmm. Now, interesting thing about that. Have you ever seen the tree of life? Yes. They actually do that in the tree of life. They kind mm-hmm. of represent things that way. And, you know, that much more abstract thing that Chasky wanted. And I, I really enjoy it there. But no, overall, I liked it way more than I thought I would. And I only have, you know, a couple of niggling things that I might've changed. And similarly, I like the conclusions and how it ends and the way it's not what you would expect it to be. So that's, that's overall reactions. Some questions for you, Sarah. Well, first of all, is there anything, you know, I mean, you've already talked about why a lot about it, but is there anything you want to add to all that? Yeah, there's, there's one main point I would say about why I like this film in this moment, um, especially is that William Hurt's performance really gets across the psychonaut mentality. So like nowadays, psychedelics are mostly, almost exclusively being talked about in a therapeutic context, which is wonderful. I mean, the research is profound, but very infrequently, only in very illicit circles where people are not 
getting academic funding and not like talking publicly are people talking about the consciousness exploration aspect of psychedelics, which will always inherently be fringe, be speculative. You'll sound crazy because we don't logically, we don't have words for a lot of these new experiences. There's Mm. wonderful work being done trying to like rate mystical experiences. There's like scales, for example, of mystical experiences. But what William Hurt's performance gets across is like the sense of discovery and the sense of truth being inherently worthwhile, even when you have no frames of references because you're tripping so hard. Like there are these performances where he see he's in incredible amounts of pain because his arm is bulging, his chest is bulging, and he's experiencing flashbacks in the form of physical genetic regressions. And mm. you see him smiling and in pain. And it's because he's like, oh, my God, the scientific implications of this. Like, Mm -hmm. and that is I totally vibe with. I totally dig. Oh, yeah. And I could sympathize with the the pain part because every now and then I'll wake up and have a terrible Charlie horse. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what I was thinking of when I saw that. You're like, the scientific implications of this Charlie horse. (laughs) Couldn't you say that? This also sort of reinforces that, you know, you take LSD, you're going to jump out the window. Oh, my God, yes. You know, yeah. Totally. I mean, this is another D.A.R.E. program, secretly funded study. And one of the things, the main question I like to ask myself and not know in advance is like, did this writer trip? Like, does he, does he get, does he get high? Because you really, like, sometimes you really can't tell because people trip in different ways. And some people trip a little bit like a cartoon experience of a psychedelic experience. And what that, my major criticism of the film is actually the extended trip scenes never capture the sense of joy, the profundity, the ecstasy that can be trips. Like trips can be like a symphony where you just, you cycle through different emotions and different experiences. But all of his experiments and forays were like deeply fraught. They're all super filled with religious iconography. Mm. And frankly, the vibe of all the trips was like shame. You know, it's like goat headed Jesus yeah. is bleeding and mad at yeah. you. And he does, mm. yeah, it's, he, he always comes out of it having done something weird. You know, yeah, he's, he's, he's bleeding. killed something or yeah. bit something. Or, he's yeah. bleeding. He killed somebody, which also, by the way, like, what the fuck he killed somebody i, I know like, and then the movie's like <laughs> ah, whatever you know, know, let's move on. Just move on what the <laughs> yeah. fuck well, they, I, th- I think a little bit later they mentioned that the guard was coming around or something <laughs> like that so they gave him an exit right but the, it's not like there was some investigation murder yeah. investigation it's just like oh you're a scientist and this thing happened and you know yeah. whatever okay most, <laughs> you know, this yeah. is where i like i relate to patty like having written things before i understand his constraint but like he narratively he needed William Hurt to trip several times alone where like he's not being monitored. That is just so unrealistic that like William Hurt, whose like whole academic study is like writing on this extremely dangerous participation, wouldn't have multiple people watching him to make sure he didn't get out of the tank. That kind of shit seems important. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I don't know how much you know about this, Sarah, but is this a realistic portrayal of the kind of native culture and their use of psychedelics or is this you know one of those stereotypical things yeah it's it's definitely a hodgepodge as far as i know 
of different traditions. And it is kind of like, on, on one hand, fetishizing of native indigenous psychedelic routines. And on the other hand, it's also demonizing. Like there's the Shipibo tribe, which is famous for administering ayahuasca. Then there's a specific town in Mexico where Maria Sabina comes from that is famous for curanderos, who are like Mexican healers that use mushrooms. It's a little bit closer to that. And then there's the peyote rituals of the Native Americans, which are actually the most recent by far. And this is a combination. As far as I know, there's no South American tradition of face painting while you're taking this stuff. There's definitely no fucking blood sacrifice. <laughs> there's young people that take so, it. So you've never taken someone's hand and, and split it open with a knife? Is <laughs> I mean, yes, but like who hasn't? <laughs> you know, you're just like in the moment and it feels yeah. organic. No, I mean, that kind of shit is just like if I had to pick the worst set and setting, it would probably be slice somebody's hand open. Don't tell them what's fucking going on. Make them drink something terrible. Abandon that person and then get mad at them the next day for killing a lizard. The whole thing was by modern standards. Yeah, they would be canceled, you know, till next Tuesday uh, for this portrayal. But at the end, he has some throwaway line about how. Oh, they're, you know, they're just trying to frame me as some gringo who's stealing from their ceremony. And the thing is, he kind of is, because when you think about that exchange, what did he give back to those people? Mm -hmm. They let him in on an intimate, private, ceremonial ritual, and he got to trip. They didn't even vet him. They were just like, yeah, sure, trip with us. He got to take medicine home with him to have it analyzed in mm -hmm. the lab. It's just kind of very, very mean. It's one-sided. And then there's also mm -hmm. some horticultural technicalities like Amanita muscaria does not grow, as far as I know, in South America. What they did was they created a total hodgepodge of even many indigenous cultures, including Russia. Because like, like Amanita muscaria, I know it like, grows in like Russia. There's all these different types of influences in this ceremony. Yeah, it doesn't really give them also like the breadth to make their argument about like how they do this, which I understand it's like a 20 minute scene. They could have cut out the extended trip scene and gone a little yeah. bit more into like, for example, Iowa scarabs will take medicine on behalf of somebody going through a problem. Mm -hmm. Also, it's a rite of passage. So they could have included young boys who are going through this as like a community ritual. There's certain elements that are really cool and interesting that I don't think would have taken up too much time that they probably should have included. Hmm. Yeah. And an issue for me is I've explored things like meditation or these things is that the people involved are saying, okay, you can do this or that, but really you need to go to India and have a guru. And really, and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> like that shouldn't, I shouldn't have to go to South America and be on top of a mountain or go to India and have a guru in order to explore this. And, you know, th so that's always kind of something I just have an issue. There's, there's different with. ways yeah. of taking that. I think like it's worth, I would say, if you're, if you're open to trying mind altering drugs that are not conventional, you may also be open to experience and guidance, which is not Western. And so like, I think that there's a real argument to be made to actually go for that trip because Here's another reason why I run really commit to the experience because set and setting matters. Now, this is coming from somebody who, frankly, hasn't raised the funds myself to go to South America to do this. I've had ceremonial healers that try to practice in the same tradition in fucking Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I can I can see 
the argument these people are making because like there's something fucking cool about the way a lot of these healers work like for example ayahuasca is a combination of banisteriopsis which is a vine and then a plant leaf the ayahuasca plant leaf which has the dmt in it it grows in rainforests the insane improbability of knowing to brew the root as well as this particular leaf. Some horticulturists have done studies. It's like a million to one odds. And yet somehow the Shipibo tribe, along with others, discovered this medicine. Like it's an incredible miracle that it was discovered. Or maybe there's tons of psychoactive, interesting compounds that just (laughs) haven't been found yet. But like Mm. it's a really, really cool spiritual thing. And there's lots of cool little coincidences and potentially miraculous instances that come with the indigenous experience. And by the way, they've been doing this shit for thousands of years. We're JV. Like, they're the varsity. (laughs) So one thing, I think a shallow but true interpretation of the movie is it's really just visualizing the experience that a lot of people feel they've had, you know, except perhaps for the part about turning into a monkey. (laughs) And in my reading of, you know, Michael Pollan and others and people I've talked to, it really seems like the intellectual and emotional journey that William Hurt is going through is the real journey that so many people are going through. Like they feel like there's this truth out there Mm. and they want to explore this. I don't know. What do you think about that? Totally. Like at the beginning, he's, it reminds me a lot of like the beginning of Dr. Faustus by Goethe, where the doctor is like in his literal ivory tower and he has like all of these badges, like honorifics, I guess, of how academics were awarded. And he's bemoaning the fact that he's learned so much and it needs nothing. And I think a lot of academics reach this point where like that's how William Hurt starts off. He's like, you know, I have I pu- I've published two papers a year for the past seven years. I'm like doing well at Harvard or whatever, and it, I've done nothing of value. And I really kind of understand that where you get institutional recognition for the stuff you do, but it's the stuff that really pushes the boundary that you really want to be doing because that's the real value. And mm-hmm. I really like William Hurd's character, how it was written and his performance, even though he's kind of a fucking dick to the women in his life. But like, I, I relate it to his, his struggle. It seems like he's inhuman at the beginning, right? I mean, he spends seven years with Blair Brown, you know, having kids and everything, and he doesn't give a shit. He's willing to just give that all up in a second. And at the end of this, his realization is, oh, there was no answer at the other side of this. And then he becomes, essentially he becomes human. You know, he then cares about his partner and his life. Like he, once he's gone through this experience, he can now engage in human relations. That's kind of my interpretation, yeah. at least. These, yeah. these mm-hmm. journeys always end with that kind of ending because it does provide some sort of narrative relief. But I would be much happier if, frankly, she was just kind of like, no, dude, you ignore me for this long. Fuck you. <laughs> like, because, you know, it's a little bit, okay, he's had the time to go through his journey and now he deserves to get the girl. Mm. And... I think that sometimes that's not always true. Like sometimes you go through this journey and you find there is no answer and you you made mistake with consequences at the end of it. Because frankly, there's a false dichotomy people make between being like, 
absent-minded professor, struggling genius, and a good person, a beautiful mind, like a bunch of different tropes. And it's like, no, you could always be a good person. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that interested me that the movie touches on, but like psychedelics, depending on which variety you're involved with, some of them seem to have a very common effect, and, and they mentioned this when they're talking about the particular potion that is used in this movie, where it's something where everybody has kind of the same experience. You know, a lot of psychedelics produce this feeling of like, you know, the oneness of everything or, you know, a part of a universal mind or however you want to put it. My question is, since you have some experience with this, have you had experience with that? frequently reported phenomenon and what interpretation do you put on it if any is there a particular frequently reported phenomenon you're referring to or just like the just that, like that the oneness with everything thing oh. where, where people get the <laughs> yes what's the old joke i'll have one with everything yeah makes me one with everything yeah <laughs> yeah the buddhist goes to the bar <laughs> yes there is a feeling of universality that is ubiquitous in trip reports That has to do, there's some neuroscientific theories as to why essentially like psychedelics can lower activity in a part of the brain, a system called the default mode network, which is responsible for your sense of self, like your ego, your sense of boundary, where your skin ends and the world begins, where, Mm. you know, what are, who are you, those kinds of things. And if that gets lowered, your sense of, frankly, cosmic understanding increases. I've definitely had that experience of just feeling a real pinching of time and space and a strong empathy with other people and universality. There's also what William James called a noetic quality, which is an internal assurance that something is true. And this is one of the things that dogs this movie is that William Hurt clearly experiences this. There's certain like experiences you could have where it's a feeling, but it's also a certainty. You've gone through it and you know that it happened and there's no way to prove it necessarily. And you experience that. In some ways, William Hurt's journey is a wish fulfillment one because he's able to prove it. A lot of people on psychedelics, they're like, I know I communed with my grandmother and that, or I know that I recovered this memory. But there's no way to prove that. And what's great is that William Hurt did that. And I will say, actually, I had a spooky experience where I confirmed something. So it was my first time on DMT. And it was also a first date, not the greatest setting. (laughs) (laughs) I smoked some DMT in the classic glass pipe setup. I had a beautiful experience of women made of cups offering me cups. And I'd go into the cups and there was more women of cups mating, you know, (laughs) offering me cups. It was great. Sort of fractally beautiful. Uh, I felt very loved. And then I was taken to a forest and I was looking down aerially at the forest and I knew where this was. This was a forest where I'd had a very important backpacking trip as a teenager. And later, a lot later, I just thought, I just realized like, wait a second, I walked through that forest, but I never saw it from above. You know, I was walking through it. (laughs) How did I know that 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 was the same forest? And I was like, you know, I must have imagined it. And then I remembered Google Earth exists. (laughs) And so I looked it up on Google Earth and it looked exactly like what I had seen in my trip. 
Hmm. Now, I was able to prove this to myself, but not to other people because I couldn't. It's just my word, essentially, if I were to tell you that this happened. But I have a theory as to how it works, which is there are these famous creations in South America called the Nazca lines. No, sure. Some people have theories about aliens, stuff like that. Very speculative stuff about how they were created because they're huge geometric patterns in the earth that would be extremely hard to make if you're just kind of planning it from the ground. Mm -hmm. These were also populations that might have been exposed to ayahuasca, of which the psychoactive ingredient is DMT. And so my theory, my speculative theory is like very not well-informed, just small anecdotes, is that Mm -hmm. perhaps DMT alters your spatial perception so that you can see from above, like some part of your brain is very primitively subconsciously tracking where you are in space and can have a concept of what it looks like from above. Hmm. And so that's my altered state, William Hurt theory. <laughs> okay. Makes I have sense. Yet to, I have yet to genetically regress, though. Still waiting uh-huh. on that. <laughs> so on the acting side, I was really surprised. I mean, first of all, so many people in here, these were earlier first roles, and they just did great job. So Bob Balaban is someone I love. I knew him yeah. from Jerry Seinfeld. He's been in everything. Here he has hair. <laughs> yeah. me, he's, he's bald. <laughs> Charles Hayden. Now I knew he, so he played Mason who was, so the two of them, Bob Bellman and him are the ones who are kind of with William Hurt throughout the whole thing. And Charles Hayden is the kind of skeptical guy who's trying to keep him under control and everything. And I knew him from Hill Street Blues. If you ever saw that, he was this really asshole cop on that mm-hmm. show, but he, I thought he did a great job. Mm-hmm. Blair Brown, this was her first role in a movie. I love her. William Hurt, this is his first role in a movie. What? Really? Also, Drew Barrymore. Wait, Drew Barrymore is in this? She was the kid. She was the girl. (laughs) Is this before E.T.? Yeah, yeah. She's got a really, like, speech. The stuff she was in as a kid is the stuff of, like, what people get high and watch and, like, relate to. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about people getting high for E.T., but that might be a new new one on me. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I just, well, what do you guys say? I mean, I just thought across the board, and they were handling really difficult lines, right? Oh, really, yeah. Mm. yeah. I thought that, I thought the acting was good. I do think, you know, I'm not a, an expert on Patty Chayefsky's work, but I've seen Network at least six times, probably. <laughs> so I, I at least, I, I have a sense of some of the di- dialogue that he writes, and it's, it's both very, very entertaining and also somewhat artificial. It's like not a lot of oh, people yeah. really talk that way. It's like Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I know of him. I'm not acquainted with his work, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the acting, I thought they did a great job. I enjoyed it. it, it it's just an all around neat movie. And, and that's another thing I wanted to mention is just the visual, not, not even specifically the, the psychedelic trip stuff, but just the way all the shots, they have, they have color, you know, they have visual interest, you know, like that first isolation tank that looks like a big old boiler, you know, just a lot of memorable visuals in it. That's what makes me suspect that maybe I never did watch this movie because I would think there's got to be something in it that would trigger yeah, trigger a memory if I had seen it yeah, before. I don't know much about Ken Russell, but I know he's supposed to be a really out there director. So I would have expected doing a film like this that he would have really gone overboard. Sort of more the Jadarowski 
approach, right? And so it surprised me that actually this is, I would consider it restrained. I mean, I think that he chose really interesting images, but he was very careful not to just go wacky. Mm -hmm. I think like uh, one of the interesting things I I think Guy said that I kind of disagree with is just like, so psychedelics can really enhance your perceptions, like sight, sound, especially color. And one of the things that stood out to me was this movie was very muted in its colors. And partly that's mm. kind of, I feel like the 70s, or this was like 1980, but like 70s, early 80s, like film is kind of like brownish in its hue. I remember I used to think as a kid that the 70s itself were just more of a brown time because like all of the photos and the movies <laughs> seem so like fall autumnal. Mm. That was one thing that I found was missing in addition to like it being super serious and scary all the time and not having enough joy. There wasn't number one colors and number two geometric patterns, which are super mm. common in psychedelic visuals. Mm, yeah. It may be that I'm just, I just fixated on the places where the colors are vivid. Like there's, yeah. With that boiler tank, you get the the bronze color against, uh, there's like a bright blue at some points. And then uh, there's that scene in the hallucinations where they're dressed up in completely white outfits and they've got like some kind of bright orange backdrop behind them when they're serving each other this ice cream, which I thought might be a symbol of the apple of eden but i don't know if that's a whole other thing but <laughs> but i <laughs> yeah. think maybe just where there are colors maybe that just stuck with me and, and maybe washed away the memory of the duller colors <laughs> yeah i could definitely see that and yes the there's like a lot of like red herrings and trips or like not red herrings but like so much iconography but one of the things that this did not in my opinion quite or one of the interesting things about psychedelic tripping is that it is far more like AR than VR, like augmented reality versus virtual reality, which mm. is to say most of the time, the vast majority of hallucinations or visualizations will be based in the world. So they'll be like the colors are bleeding or the walls are breathing mm. or like motion on the periphery, things like that. Right. However, what's interesting about his trips is that he was in a sensory deprivation tank the whole time. And so the images he's seeing are entirely in his head. I will say that like for that kind of tripping, it can be extremely hard to represent visually because oftentimes it's not actually coherent vision so much as feelings mm. that you can later comprehend and attach visions to. But one particular experience he had that I felt a lot, there's one scene where he turns into sand and starts to kind of blow away. Mm, yeah, where they look like the, the bodies from Pompeii. Yeah, I've had an experience like that where I felt it was more graphic. Like it felt like I was like a corpse decomposing. It's okay. It felt amazing, actually. So <laughs> I was super relaxing. And also mm. I felt it was cool to be spooky. Like I remember feeling like a corpse and feeling like, yeah, it's kind of fun, kind of spooky. <laughs> anyway, I, I related to that, ex <laughs> to that experience. But once again, like, it can be really hard. How do you visually represent decomposing, but like being okay with it? Hmm. Like enjoying the ride. <laughs> huh. There were adult aspects to this film that I appreciate that actually we don't kind of do right now, you know, as we go through swings and stuff. So in the 80s, we had all these movies where 
yeah, very gratuitous, you know, boobies and, and such for no reason at all. Right. <laughs> and it, every single movie had to have them. And my theory is as the internet came along and everybody had access to porn, they no longer needed movies to do that. But now movies don't do any of that. We never have nudity. We never like, we've totally gone the other direction. And I feel like a movie like this, where it's like, wait, no, the nudity is here because these are adult humans and humans have sex and that's part of the story. And none of it is exploitive. It's just the story. Hmm. And so I hope we come back to more of that. I hope we, you know, are allowed yeah. to have adult films. Yeah. That's really interesting. Hmm. I mean, one thing I appreciated is that like her boobs look like normal boobs and like um, <laughs> 70s movies are filled with boobs that are like normal looking boobs that are not quite as like pendulous and like perfectly perky. And mm. I think that's because like bra technology was not quite as advanced as, right. as it is today. But also as we got to the eighties, they started having doubles to do the, oh, the nude parts. Right. So, mm. Yeah. So yeah. But anyway, I liked it, you know, it was like normalizing <laughs> weird boobs, um, which I may or may not have. <laughs> but like, um, so I liked it from that aspect. I definitely agree. It's like, it's showing we're primitive, you know, like it's kind of like, we're not that evolved from that primitive state he goes into it's just we don't see that all the time mm -hmm. so we always wrap up with whether something's worth watching for a modern audience i think i mean because you had it on your list sarah and you've heard our response i, I think you know it sounds to me like we would all agree that people should check it out if they've never seen the movie does I anyone would, disagree with that <laughs> i would say my review is not based on like a rating system it's based <laughs> off of like how this sounds like this Yes or no sounds to you. I would rate this movie. Yeah. That, that <laughs> level of yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's funny because it was on your list, but I think Guy and I enjoyed it more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> I viewed it like homework. Like it was super informative yeah. and like fun. Uh, the trip scenes were kind of exhausting. But yeah, I think you should watch it because it is it will it's like it's good for you it's a little bit like broccoli <laughs> well, i think it's actually just worth watching <laughs> okay. yeah. guy what's your take i i liked it very much i was just pleased with it all around even the surprise ending which is it may be a bit pat and convenient and all that but uh compared to the ending that i was really expecting that would have been a very very dark ending <laughs> so it was kind of a pleasant surprise thumbs up yeah, okay so thank you so much sarah for coming yeah. on and how can people follow you yeah well you have to enter a sensory deprivation tank <laughs> breathe deeply <laughs> and whisper sarah rose siskin and then follow me on Twitter <laughs> SR Siskin and like check out my company if you're a scientist who needs to be less boring. And you have some fun YouTube videos. Yeah, I did I have some weird shit. I ran a an ultra marathon on LSD ones. That's on my <laughs> that's on my Vimeo. Check that out. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, thank you. Truth is what's transitory. It's human life that is real. I don't want to frighten you, Emily, but what I'm trying to tell you is that that moment of terror is a real and living horror living and growing within me now. And the only thing that keeps it from devouring me is you. Why don't you just come back to us? Mm. It's too late. I don't think I can get out of it anymore. I can't live with it. The pain is too great. 
So, Sarah, I like to say that we met uh, climbing up an active volcano in Guatemala. <laughs> and that's true, but we really got to know each other on the really long, boring bus ride between, to and from the volcano. So. Oh, man. Yeah. I was ready to propose to you at the end of that bus ride. You're so fascinating. Everybody on the bus, it really felt a little bit like high school. Where there was like two nerds in the back of the school bus, yeah. like just jamming out about psychedelics and tech and weird shit. <laughs> <laughs>